Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've been running conversations with some of the best guitar players in the game for over a year now. Not only has this been amazing for myself and A.L. to learn from, but it's been amazing for us to share this vast knowledge with all of you. If you enjoy what we're doing, then please share us with your friends, and we especially love iTunes reviews. Remember that you can tag us if you want to share the podcast on your Instagram. You can find me at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S. And you can find Al at Al Levy URM Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. Always remember that we will never charge you for this podcast. So please keep listening and enjoying. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on to this week's guest. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Kevin Thrasher, who is a guitar player, engineer, producer, and songwriter. He is the guitar player and primary songwriter for Escape the Fate, as well as one of the production minds behind all of their releases, Recently, Kevin has been working in the studio with some of the biggest artists on the planet, such as Travis Barker, MGK, Avril Lavigne, Scott Stapp, and many, many more. Kevin is the definition of prolific, and I'm super stoked that he is on this podcast. Here goes. Kevin Thrasher, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. What's up, EL? Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Nice to meet you, mate. What's up, John Brown? <laughs> Such a boring <laughs> name, isn't it? <laughs> I know. Mine's Kevin Gruft, so uh, it's Thrasher now. <laughs> <laughs> Thrasher works. So classical guitar. Classical guitar. Just picked it up recently. That is so, like, uh, unexpected. That's all I'll say. So I want to hear about that. Yeah, it's so funny because I started taking classical guitar lessons from our old bass player in Escape the Fate that plays in Falling Reverse. He's, like, the lead guitar player for Falling Reverse, and he's a buddy of mine. And we chat all the time. And he's a crazy, amazing classical guitar player. And I bought one a few months ago just to kind of just, I guess I, I'm like a guitarist, right? So I figured I should have a classical guitar. And it's a lot more challenging than it looks. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's a completely different <laughs> instrument. But it's sick. I've been having so much fun with it. It's like meditating almost when, when practicing it. Are you sight reading? Sight reading tablature. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, because yeah. uh, sight reading notation um, is a whole other nightmare. Yeah, I used to do that when I was when I was younger, but I haven't sight read notation in like twelve years. So, is it something that you're doing just to expand your musical horizons, or is there like a career reason? Or I guess there is both. I mean, one was I've just been doing so much like punk rock and you know, kind of power chords and, you know, some lighter uh, music. So I guess classical was a way to just like strengthen my brain a little bit in the artistic world of learning music. And then on top of it, yeah, I think for uh, career reasons, there's a, I work with a lot of like rap producers and different genres. So it's nice to pull out a classical guitar and kind of play a loop, finger picking or doing a completely different style. And I imagine that you're going to get chord progressions in your head that 
would have never come up otherwise. Yeah, totally. I think it's that and having, you know, working on the bass notes as well as the melody, it's it's better for figuring out your voicing and definitely leads to writing more interesting stuff, especially in the rock world too, which is based in, in that classical genre, like metal. Interesting that you say that about the bass notes and working that with the melody and it leading to more interesting writing because I've always felt like guitar, electric guitar at least, or the way that we learn to play electric guitar for these genres we're in is not set up great for writing like the way that say a piano is because um you know you can do multiple things at the same time at the piano it's just there for you guitar is not always great because a nothing sustains i guess that's even more true with a classical guitar right it's hard to do multiple things at the same time so classical guitar definitely you can get very adept at having melody, bass, and harmony going all at the same time. It's a lot closer to how you would write on a piano. Exactly. And then even little techniques such as vibrato, you're doing a sideways vibrato rather than an up and down vibrato is something to get used to. And, you know, coming from like the metal and shred world, I just want to always play fast. And classical guitar really forces you to slow down pieces in order to get the emotion out of the guitar you have to play them slow and kind of there's a freer tempo to it all because a lot of it is is slowing down and speeding up and there's there's more freedom to it as in no tempo basically there's no tempo exactly i know i'm trying to follow along with other classical guitarists on youtube or spotify and it's like there's no tempo to follow you just have to you're like understanding their feel which is super cool, especially after doing so much editing and everything's like so on the grid and, you know, making sure every guitar part is aligned and every vocals aligned and every drum hit is aligned all day long. Playing something that has that much freedom is, is kind of awesome. I imagine that that fluid tempo where the tempo matches the expression is something that you could bring back to the type of production you work on, uh, even if it's still on the grid, doesn't mean that the grid has to stay at the same tempo or the different sections of the song have to be at the same tempo. I mean, you know, as well as I, that like lots of great producers will do things like speed up a chorus by one dB. Or and we've been doing that a bunch too, not necessarily having a chorus a little faster. I mean, the first Escape the Fate record had that where the chorus might be a little faster than the verses. Travis and I co-wrote this song with Ian Dior that's coming out soon. And the entire first section intro is like 20 BPMs faster. And it slows down to like the sick groove. And so we're adding it into pop music in a cool way. That's awesome. I think that that's actually why a lot of people listen to older, heavy records and feel like the songs have a better feel. Like, I don't necessarily think that there's not great feel on modern records, but I think that one of the reasons that people uh, connect with those classic records is because the, the tempos are fluid and they kind of they kind of move in the direction that they're supposed to, I guess more rather than just sticking to one constant thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely a lot of feeling in those records, especially like the old metal records too. And like 
Pantera and Metallica would, would you know, on a, on a sludgy breakdown, would slow down the whole track or they would just slow down as players, right? Even if you um, like listen to stuff like Poison the Well, one song that always comes to mind is the song Nerdy, where it slows down naturally. And yeah. I believe that that wasn't done to a click and a lot of great records weren't done to clicks. And I think that that human element is kind of what's missing from modern records, why people do go back to those old records, hoping for the mistakes, basically, because that's what it is. It's a mistake, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a real moment in time, which is sick. Eric Valentine will actually make tempo markers at each tempo. He'll, he'll take a drum performance. I was watching one of his YouTube videos and he took a drum performance and, and slightly nudged things around, but he made uh, markings at every single transient hit for tempo changes. So there was like a thousand BPM changes in his session. <laughs> Insane. So he could grid the rest of the band to the drum performance. It's great. Crazy. Man, that's pretty extreme. I've done it to where it's like every important element of a riff got its basically marker for tempo, like a fill. It, like fills especially god it was so much work especially when quadding guitars trying to learn heavy ass riffs playing them is hard enough but playing them four times exactly the same through a fluid tempo is really really hard but it's fucking cool in the end yeah then you're really listening at that point you're like trying to feel that instead of looking at a grid or something it's tough though it takes so much longer. I guess you could just play it like to a click and then conform it to the grid. You could just do that. It makes you such a better player though Yeah. to, to play that part over and over again just to get it right. When we were in the studio with Howard Benson, his engineer, Mike Plotnikoff, he basically makes you get the part right and you have to do like entire long sections of the song and then we'll we'll solo it and his, his process is for you to play the riff or, or the part and then he solos it to make sure there's no, no weird mistakes and then we double it and then we listen to the solo double and then we move on from there and rhythm guitars could take all day that's for one song yeah for one song exactly now we're doing like guitars leads bass keys 808s vocals multiple layers in one day and it's like turned in the following day that's crazy it's crazy. but um yeah, that Mike Plotnikoff way of tracking guitars is so awesome to me because I love getting it right. Do you feel like it stretched your brain? Totally. And it forced me to, after those sessions, I would feel so bad about myself. I would practice to a <laughs> click. I would just do all downstrokes to a click, all upstrokes, and just try to get my timing better so we're not having these full rhythm days happening. And yeah, whenever I put a guitarist through that sort of situation, as an engineer, they, they just think I hate them or I'm out to get them or something. But I'm like, <laughs> I'm just trying to get the parts right and not have to edit guitars later. Oh, thank you. Someone else that doesn't like editing guitars. Yeah, I hate it. I'd rather just get it right. And yeah, sometimes there's not that much time for it. Or they'll play, they're not a guitarist and they'll play it one time and be like, just chop it up and then walk <laughs> away, walk out of the room like, okay, thanks. So here's the thing. There's the ideal, right? We all know what the ideal is, which is just fucking play it right. And then there's reality of the situation. And I think that a lot of people who aren't in these high pressure situations, uh, who have never been in them, might not understand that you got to do what you got to do to get the job done. And there's some people you're recording who are just not capable of 
it doesn't matter how much you put them through that process. They're never going to be able to play it at the level you need them to multiple times. So you do what you got to do, but still the ideal is of course, play it right multiple times. 1000%. So you were talking about how you would go home after those tracking days and um, drill down strokes, drill up strokes. Do you still do that stuff? Yeah, I'm back on it. I've been practicing like crazy lately because I had um, a little bit of a, a guitar slump, which is probably why I got the classical guitar. I was so focused in the and producing and writing and engineering and everything had to be done with that exact purpose in mind to write a song with someone or finish a mix or a production that the classical guitar and, and taking lessons forced me to like actually practice something that brought me back into playing blues guitar, which I grew up playing. Now I'm doing like Twitch where I'll just jam and live stream. But in between that, when I'm printing stems all day, or it seems like all day, but it's like at the end of the, of the night, <laughs> while they're bouncing out, I'll just hit like chromatic scales or or just, just run scales with a click and just, you know, make sure I'm keeping up that practice because it, once you're not practicing for a year or, or really pushing yourself, you definitely lose some of that motor function a little bit. You know, even though it comes back quick, I just never want to feel like I can't at an instant just play. <laughs> just been going through that. Yeah. Yeah. Try seven. Yeah. Damn. Are you playing guitar again? Yeah. Man, the first few weeks back were rough stuff. Holy shit. Yeah, I'm like, I forgot how to play, I think. <laughs> I started buying a lot of guitars. I got a Jazz Master. Um, I got, uh, Gibson gave me like a crazy 1959 Les Paul Heritage and a Holy 335 Custom. And those inspired me to play even more because I'm like literal dream guitar in my hands. And as soon as I pick up that guitar, I just want to play it all day long. It's so dope. Do you feel like uh, now that you did kind of have that slump, you came back and tried something brand new, got new guitars, like basically you're back in it now. Um, do you feel like now that you've like gone through the slump and recovered um, that your playing is now better than it was before? Yeah, it's getting better. But also, um, I have a different approach while playing, probably. And it's usually with the purpose of writing songs. But I guess, yeah, my, my ears are, are trained so much more because I, I really took a strict approach to engineering over the last year and a half or two years. And where that was my only focus, and that was the only thing I really cared about doing and, and getting good at. And now I feel more comfortable with that world. So I've swung back into guitar playing and... I've signed up for like random courses online. I'm on Instagram and I just look up these badass shredders and I'll message them and even ask for a guitar lesson. Like I'll take a lesson with anyone, whatever gets you inspired, you know? It's interesting because we were just talking about this the other day. When you take a songwriting approach, there's only so many, obviously there's only so many hours in a day that you can spend on this. And so if you're spending your time on that, uh, you're not gonna have the time to spend on like taking technique all the way. But I feel like at the same time, with all the experience that you have at this point, you can be a lot more intentional about when you do focus on technique and the 
technical stuff that you do practice will probably be a lot more effective now. Yeah, it's certainly more focused. I mean, I do have so many interests. So I got that classical guitar. So I try to play that every day, at least for a few minutes. And then I'm back on the shred kick where I'm just like playing as fast as I can and working up my speed with the metronome again. Yeah, I guess every day I'll kind of like pick a thing to to work on, whatever I'm kind of interested in. It might be even some blues stuff where I'm grabbing some jam tracks on YouTube and I'll, I'll just jam blues all day and I'll look up some like Steve Ray Vaughan licks and master those. Is there anything that you do like as a baseline every single day or close to every single day, like a technical baseline or just like a, a musical baseline? Like this is like a warm up or like I got to do downstrokes for like five minutes straight to a click every day or it goes like whatever, something like that. I feel like maybe because I'm so ADD with it sometimes that I'll just pick one thing for that, that day that I'll, I'll focus on. It might be like a one, two, three, four, like John Petrucci rock discipline warm up or something like that. Or it might be that day where I want to play classical guitar. So I'll play the classical guitar at home with my like coffee in the morning before going to the gym. And I'll take the classical guitar to the studio and I'll pick that up like in between sessions or anytime I have a minute. And then the thing with getting different guitars in different styles, I'll probably pick a guitar each day and play something on that, which will evoke a completely different emotion or style. So you're kind of trying to expand to as many different places as possible to find inspiration. Yeah, it feels like that. I feel like that little kid where it's like, I'm just grabbing all these different guitars and, and getting excited by them. Like a jazz master is going to make you play completely different than like a, a ESP Horizon, which with a Floyd Rose. Um, yeah, it, it just a little. So, <laughs> yeah, right. It's interesting because like a lot of the stuff that you're saying you're working on, a casual listener to the stuff that you release, at least in the studio, your your band does have some shreddy stuff. But like if people are listening to like your daily output in the studio, it would be hard to pull a comparison or like to understand how it applies. But I think that anything that makes you better applies. Yeah, I think the most important part for me is just to have the discipline to pick up a guitar every day and and practice something. So that that is my routine, I guess, is is throughout any given day. I'll definitely look at all the guitars I'm surrounded by and have to pick one up. And I just have a metronome app on my phone that I put on and I'll run scales or or whatever. Maybe like there's a lick that an Instagram guitar player has played that I'll that I'll learn or something or is the metronome always been part of your way of practice ever since the beginning? Yeah. My old guitar teachers showed me like a metronome. They'd have a metronome in their little teaching area. And I would take like 30 minute guitar lessons at a mall at our local music shop in upstate New York. Um, Mike Campes is the guitar player's name and he would show me stuff and I would always come a little early and I would hear him like shredding and I would come and be like, you have to teach me what you, whatever you were doing just now. And he'd be like, okay. And he would kind of show it to me and I'd take it home and, and practice it like obsessively until I could come back the next week and show him that I could play whatever he had just taught me. I find, I think that you probably got lucky with your guitar tutor teaching you with a metronome. Right. I guess I got that concept early on for sure. Because I remember like going over the G major scale, like the three notes per string, G major scale all up and down the neck. And I was playing it really slow 
And one day I got frustrated and I was like playing it really fast. And I had this like spark or this aha moment where I was like, oh my God, I think I can shred. And I took that moment and I, and I started to focus it in on it and just start doing like the alternate picking part of, of just like running the three note thing faster and faster and until I could do it. Do you have this like drive or like this thing where you have to see things through to the end? So if you start working on a technique, you're going to stick with it until it's like where you feel it's quote unquote mastered. Or is it more just like, this is what I'm interested for the time being. We'll see what happens with it. And then this is the next thing I'm interested in and we'll see what happens with it. Right. I think it is focused where I have to finish the task of whatever it is I've set out to do. So yeah, for that, for the classical thing, I'm like still listening to classical guitarists in the morning and, and staying inspired by that. And I, I just want to get that, that part of it right. Yeah, I think it is that drive to finish things once I've started them. One thing that I have noticed is that I find it super important to keep on taking in new things so that my brain stays activated. But then at the same time, I have to keep on making sure that the things that I was working on actually get taken to their conclusion. I mean, obviously there's no real conclusion to any of this, but what I feel is the conclusion and there's this fine line I personally have to go back and forth between because since you're never really going to have anything perfect, like never actually master anything, you could sit there with the same exercise for the next 10 years if you wanted to. There's this like mental game to knowing how much time to put into something versus when to add something new. Totally. I think there is a limit to it, right? For me, sometimes it'll be a lick or something that I'm working on and I'll be videotaping it for an Instagram timeline post or something. And that sometimes is it. Job is done. Sometimes that's like job is done, can move on from that lick, learn a new one or else whatever inspired that thing that you posted is done. Outcome oriented practice has served me very, very well. It's something that when my career shifted from the band to the studio and I only had very little time to practice, that's like the only thing that I would do is if I was playing guitar, there was a reason for it. I was going to be playing a solo on somebody's record or their bass player sucked. So I had to learn all the songs on bass or whatever the hell it was like doing a project for tune track, have to write some songs like whatever it is, there'd be this, this thing that had to be done like an actual job. And there were techniques involved with being good enough to do that. And so then that would be the entire focus. And I found that in some ways working on it like that, I made a lot more progress in a shorter period of time than maybe back in the day when I would sit there for eight hours and have like 30 minutes of scales, 30 minutes of arpeggios, 30 minutes of fucking legato, 30 minutes of sight reading. That kind of practice has its time and place, I think, when you're a lot younger. But that outcome-oriented way of doing it, like you just described, I think is super effective. Yeah, I think it's important to have a goal, whether it is mastering something for a video or mastering something to be recorded on your record or you're writing a song. I was watching this Ed Sheeran 
documentary on him making record and he talked about songwriting that way where where he finishes every song he writes because if he doesn't finish it's like a, a dirty tap so it's like he's writing the worst song of his life the dirty tap is running and if he doesn't finish it there's going to be some of that dirty water in the next song so some of that song's <laughs> going to have some of that bad part of his his bad song that he's writing i was actually going to bring this up just before about how these these people that we see that sit on the same songs for years and years and years and the reason that they can't move on is because they haven't put an end to it. And I feel like it's the same way with techniques and focusing on that. I get into those ruts as well, um, Al. you know, where you practice something over and over and over again and you don't know when to stop. But if it's for a goal, um, such as finishing a song, then I find it's a way to escape it and also call it a day so that you uh, you know when to stop. Because <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's, it's the same as writing a song. When do you abandon it? Because it's never finished. You abandon it, right? Yeah. Abandon or now, I don't know, man. Abandon is such an extreme word. Abandon implies that you have left it in the past completely and none of it is coming with you. And the thing about this style of practice is you're taking those lessons that you learned while working on that thing, whatever it is, a technique or finishing a song, you're bringing that skill or that experience with you forward. So you're not really abandoning it, in my opinion. Abandoning would be like gone, forgotten. Right. I guess so. Just a different word than maybe I would use. Say there's a song, like say say that my band wrote Bleed or something. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, had to learn how to play it for the recording. Which took them six months, by the way. Dude, unbelievable that any human can play that. Meshuggah wrote, wrote that. <laughs> In six months? <laughs> or learn to play it in six months. Yeah, apparently it nearly didn't make the record because uh, Thomas Hooker, it took him six months to be comfortable with it. It's also the only track that he uses triggers on live. It's fucking unreal. But I'm using that song as an example just to illustrate my point. There's an extreme example. If you were to master playing that song well enough for recording or to play live and then you moved on to other songs, your skills are going to be way, way better with your right hand, right? Like you're not abandoning that. You're taking your enhanced self with you. That's true. Right. And if you show it to someone and and you don't get the best reaction, you know not to write that sort of <laughs> yes. song again. <laughs> like, Let's not do that again. Or you figure out what moment they sparked up and, and you use that for another song. But with that, with that thing, I've been trying to make sure I have a folder that I'm bouncing out. Like maybe it's a, an idea songwriting session that I'm doing. And usually when I'm doing songwriting sessions, they're, they're from start to finish. But lately I've been making like these little sections and loops and riffs and stuff. And I'm organizing them into folders where I can kind of listen to it at a later date, because sometimes you could be writing something that you think is shit that day, but it might have some magic in it actually, but you're just in a bad mood or, or it's just not hitting you the, the, the right way. Someone else, Al. Here we go. We found someone else that does the same thing. <laughs> hold on. Hold on. Let me clarify. Let me clarify something. I, I think that that's a great way to do things. This uh, is a new approach, too. I have hard drives of songs that just live on, on a session that have never been bounced out. I need to clarify something. So, well, okay. so the reason Brown's talking some shit is because uh, I said that... Um, 
that I do think that lots of the shitty ideas, at least for me, if they're not good enough, I do not resurrect them. But, you know, some ideas just suck. They should just be buried <laughs> deep under the Absolutely. earth. And that's it. They should never that's be resurrected. It. However, there are some ideas that, like you said, you're in the wrong mood. It doesn't fit the song you're working on. You just can't figure out what to do with it, but there's some magic there. I'm not saying to get rid of that stuff. Obviously not. Like, I'm just saying when there's a shit-ass riff or, like, a shit-ass part that's just substandard. Or just, like, basic, yeah. Just feel free to trash it. Some basic bitch riff. <laughs> Do you trash things ever? Always, yeah. Not always. <laughs> every time. There are times when I'm in with a, an artist and we'll write. They might be, like, a, a frustrating artist to me because they're like, no... Uh, and they'll sing something great over it. No. And, and we'll do like six songs in, in a few hours. And the last one might land on something great. So I always try to push through that. Do you keep, like when you think it's cool, but they're like, no, do you save it anyways? I've definitely tried to push that at times. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Or sometimes I'll bounce it out and I'll just sneakily send it to them like the next day and be like, oh yeah, we did this yesterday. Check this out. And sometimes we'll be like, whoa, that's really good. I'm like, yep, it is. <laughs> let's, let's finish that one. Can we talk about writing for a little while? Cause you've been in, uh, first of all, it's amazing how many different things you do because, you know, we've been talking about guitar this whole time, but you do a lot of different stuff. Like your band, the engineering, the songwriting, the playing, and then just these collaborations. And it is a lot of stuff. But songwriting-wise, how did you get faster with that? I'm wondering because heavy music, traditionally, heavy music's not written very quickly. A lot of heavy music writers take their damn time and assemble heavy songs piece by piece by piece. But you are in a situation where, like you said, six songs in one day and you're with artists that have they're they're not gonna take bullshit for you know you can't just give them anything you're working with some serious artists so how did you retrain yourself to work that fast i think that was another weird songwriting tip i stumbled upon was to write for the wastebasket i forgot where i read that but i feel like that unlocked so much songwriting where you write as if it's kind of a way to like stop yourself from having like writer's block or, or blocking the creative part of you. And it's right as if like you don't care about it so much. So it's like not putting so much weight on a particular riff, but just writing instead of thinking about writing the most original riff you've ever written in your life or trying to beat like a Metallica riff. It's like which you'll never achieve. Um, <laughs> you kind of just write a riff and you get it out, you know? And and you do that as if, like, whatever, I'll just, like, toss this one away or whatever. And, and that's how you get going. And once you start getting in that flow state, you can, you, you write, like, a lot. Like, I've had moments this past year where I've focused on the mixing side of things and focused more on the engineering side. And I wasn't writing as much. And I feel like uh, I had to get back into the flow of writing by being in some rooms with some different artists. And once you get in that flow state, it's like, 
it, it's game on. Do you think a, um, a lot of metal songwriters get stuck in the emotional attachment to every single part of their song? And that's kind of part of the problem, isn't it? Yes. My experience, especially with my own band, we have a drummer who's a very nice dude, Robert Ortiz. He comes to sessions with songs or ideas and, and you know, whatever. Maybe he writes a line of a lyric and he's kind of stuck in this lyric, even though it might not fit a particular song or anyone's lives. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll, you know, kind of like push that narrative on us. And it's like, all right, it's not sticking. Let's just write something else. And for me, I'm, I'm very easy to let go of, of parts or, you know, I can tell in a room if someone's not feeling something I'm playing. So I'll, I'll switch up the key. I'll grab a different guitar and a different tuning, whatever it is. I guess you can't be so sacred on on the things that you write sometimes. It's really difficult to get out of that though as well. Right. Which comes with practice, I think, and and just learning to let go of of things and being able to to mold your songs into something that's going to make everyone excited. Like if I'm coming in to uh, an artist, like another artist's project as a songwriter, I'm not going to try to push something that they're not totally in love with you know I'm, I'm just be like oh you don't like that okay i'm gonna play this riff do you like this do you like this key should we play it on piano i'm like just down to make them stoked and whatever it is that's going to be a vessel for them to write a great song so if they're not stoked it ain't happening exactly you know i think that part of uh what causes people to get so precious about their parts is not writing enough stuff the more you write, the less every individual thing you write matters. But if you write very little, they're like your three prized possessions or something. Totally. Everyone has that one member in the band that writes like his one song a year. And <laughs> that then song matters a lot. Like, he's like, this is going <laughs> to blow up the band, man. I'm like, this is my 365th song of the year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, listen to me. Do you really write that many songs? <laughs> Probably not like a song a day, but I, maybe. I mean, if you average it out, there's probably like a Sunday where where a couple songs will be written or worked on, but then there are, are several days where I'm working on finishing those songs, which is more recording and editing, and you know maybe rearranging the same song. That's another thing too is being able to mold your song after you've written it into different tempos, keys to to fit the song. Which is another thing I learned from someone way more successful than I am is that uh, sometimes songs aren't always written in the right BPM. So it's it's important to maybe try that same song a little faster or a little slower or move the key around a little bit and until you find what's right for the singer's voice and, and what's going to push the emotion out of the singer. Is it something where you have an idea and it's cool? but not quite, there's like this other level you want it to be at. And once you find that right tempo, once you find that right key, it's just like the puzzle piece is there. Totally. Exactly. There's a song I worked on with Travis, and I think we had 75 versions of it. Holy shit. Like I, I, I had written the song name and Dash. I do like, I do one, two, three, four, five, all the way to... I mean, they usually don't get that far, but I don't do like the 1.13, 1 1.12 <laughs> thing. I'll just do like 
version one, version two. But yeah, we got up to 72 and it was for this artist, Jaden. And it was, he was into like a more EDM vibe for the song. So we took it there. Then we took it more of a pop punk way. And then we had like a full-time chorus, a halftime chorus. We changed it around a bunch of times. And the 72nd version ended up being like the first version that we had created pretty much. It like went back full circle to version one. <laughs> Sounds like the Billie Jean mix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you have to uh, explore those things though. Again, to, you know, the artist was feeling a particular way and he just wasn't stoked yet. And we just want the artist to be stoked about whatever we're working on. So sometimes you have to explore that stuff and it could be painstaking or annoying or, or whatever, but we'll, we'll go that distance. I think that's the most fun bit. Totally. It's the experimentation on the original idea. There's so many different ways that those ideas can go. Yeah, because I feel like if you don't explore those options, you'll never know. So it's easy enough to, to change the production around and, you know, everything's saved. So you can go into your backups folders and get version one again. <laughs> but sometimes it works where it's like for mgk it was my ex's best friend in that one um, that song almost didn't come out and it ended up being a massive massive single and there were several versions of that and it ended up being the final version that was the one that everyone agreed on and that song blew up so, so there's no there's no there's, like there's, both, uh, there's no, no formula, formula to it I mean, the formula is go till it's right. Totally. Or till you realize it's right. Exactly. Or till everyone, yeah, feels it. Has there ever been a point when you've not agreed with the way that one of your songs has gone with an artist and you thought a previous version was better? Yeah. I think that's happened in mixing before where an artist or a label has wanted something done by a different mixer than whoever was working on the production of the song. And sometimes they, they take it to a different place where... It's not, maybe it's not as loud or aggressive or just, you know, the emotional content isn't there. And sometimes it's hard to communicate that if if the person wasn't in the room creating the song. How do you deal with it? That's happened before. Sometimes you just have to cut your losses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes you have to fight for it and get your song right. If it's for your band, it's a lot easier to do that um, if you're the one releasing the song. We've had, we've had to do that uh, before on our records. And they've proved to be successful. So sometimes you got to fight for your right to party. I agree. And get the drummer's lyric out. Yeah. <laughs> fight for your lyric. <laughs> with artists you're working with, you know, you're talking about how you're trying to get them stoked, right? But what about when they're stoked on something you're not stoked on? <laughs> oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> one artist that kind of like will sing something and be like fuck yeah that was sick that was fire and you're like uh, oh yeah totally let's do that one more time let's just let's just get a safety <laughs> yeah it might happen with every vocal take but you just gotta push on you just have to be creative I guess and and word things the nice way Sometimes instead of just being like, no, that, that takes sucks. <laughs> but what about with songwriting, with actual songwriting? When, just be like, let's just, let's just get one more. Yeah, like when you're not stoked on a song, but they are, but you're supposed to sit there and help finish it. 
Well, whoever's pushing the buttons has the most control over that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I guess you, again, you, I think you do take them through that 72 versions. You let them try it their way and you, you let them do their thing. And, um, but you keep on maybe showing version one that you think is like this, this is like, right. Um, and maybe you hope that they just realize it for themselves because you, I don't think you can force anyone to do anything um, if you're not the artist for the project. If you, uh... <laughs> but I think a little suggestion, a little gentle persuasion. Have you ever, have you ever sent a version that didn't have the changes that an artist wanted and they no- didn't notice? <laughs> <laughs> right. Back in the day, my, my buddy Mike and I, when we first started, working together we worked at this studio called stars um we we would do that but we were a little more like young and like kind of like ignorant about things and we would send people like version b which would be the same exact (laughs) bounce and be like here's version b with your vocals turned up the guitar is a little louder the tom one louder and more to the left side and it might be the same mix and they'd be like great thank you print it I think you kind of have to be more careful with that approach now because obviously people would just import both files and do a phase reverse to see if there was actually any difference, right? Whoa, crazy. I've never tried that. I'd have to try that. Because it would just cancel each other out, right? If it was exactly the same, you'd hear all the little nuances. And now I I don't think I would do that. (laughs) I mean, we're young and thought our way was the best way every time. I mean, with the clientele you've got, kind of got to take him seriously. Totally. And I feel like at this point, there aren't any weird or unnecessary notes. It's more of a matter of taste. It's more of a matter of, of a style or a vibe. So, yeah, it, I think it's easy to, to make those adjustments. So let's talk a little bit about how you went about learning other genres. Because um, not just learning other genres, but like learning how to write in other genres in a way that actually feels authentic. You said that in hip hop, it uh, pays dividends to be diverse. But how does that actually translate in real life? Like someone who has been learning death metal and shred for the past 10 years, they want to do something else or expand, how does it actually work in the real world? For me, I've always been interested in other genres. I I had like a household that played like Spanish music and pop music growing up. On one side, it was like Fly 92 in one room. And then my dad was rocking like K-Rock and he would put on like Zeppelin and Leonard Skinner and blues records and stuff. So I got kind of that melting pot of, of music from my upbringing. But anyone that maybe didn't get that, that grew up just learning death metal and, and metal and hard hardcore music, I would just start by listening to the charts on Spotify, listen to the top 100 Spotify songs, pick a, a genre per day. And just it's it's kind of like learning a new language. So it's like listen to the trap playlists, listen to the pop playlists, listen to the EDM playlists, and and, and that will make you a little bit more knowledgeable. Um, I'm always listening to like top 40 songs and studying 
charts and and listening to different genres. I feel like trap was was a genre that that took me a little longer to get into. And I, I felt like I had to play that stuff often in order to kind of learn those approaches, even though it seems so simple. You're like, oh, there's just like an eight bar guitar riff that repeats and there's like a vinyl effect over it sometimes. And sometimes the whole beat is filtered, which a lot of it is kind of like that. It's very nuanced in what kind of hi-hats you use, what kind of drums you're using and what, what kind of style 808. Like the 808 completely defines the genre or how modern it is or how far you've taken something. So like an 808 sound is like, what kind of guitar amp am I going to use? Am I going to use a 5150? Am I going to use a Hughes and Kettner? Am I going to use a Kemper on something? So learning those nuances, I think, by just listening to those other genres is a way to learn all of them. I find that one of the reasons that people don't always do a good job when they're trying other genres artistically is because they don't, they haven't put in the work. Like when you get like a metal band or something who have decided to broaden their horizons and like say add clean vocals or something, you know, at five albums in, they have decided to add clean vocals and the clean vocals <laughs> suck. They don't know how to write those kinds of parts. The vocalist isn't even that great at uh, singing those parts. Or like you'll have like people from the extreme metal world who will then put together a rock band or something like that. And it'll suck. Not always the case, but often the case. And I feel like the only reason that those things typically suck is because that musician has not put the time in with whatever it is that they're trying to expand to. They're not approaching it as an actual listener either. So like what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. If you want to get good at trap, listen to a lot of trap first and learn it as a listener so that your sensibilities start to adjust to that. So then when you're working on it, you've got some place to go from as opposed to your death metal version of it. I think you have to fully absorb those those sounds and the certain phrasing. And obviously you can bring your influence into it and that's how genres develop and become more interesting is to bring your flavor to those things. But yeah, you definitely should listen to a lot of whatever you're trying to produce or, or create. I think it comes down to um, musical experience for each listener as well. If you think about it, it's the same 12 notes with every genre of music in the Western world. And the only difference is the way that it's expressed, which is exactly what you were talking about with trap music, with the different sounding AO8s, the hats, or the way that the guitar loops over eight bars. And I think that those nuances are things that maybe someone that's not listening out for those really fully understands. They hear the, the notes, but they don't hear the space between the notes. Right. And, and pop punk being such like a relevant genre again sometimes we'll get like pop punk tracks from people or i've gotten it as as a mixer and you can just tell they're just trying to create what they think it sounds like instead of like for me i grew up in that world and i was like skateboarding as a teenager and listening to like punk music and and, and pop punk music so i feel like i understand that genre so well but someone might be listening from the outside in and, and just create something. And it's like, oh, it's just a couple of palm mutes. And, but they'll have like death metal sounding drums over it. 
and it, and it doesn't work. <laughs> I'm just laughing because uh, <laughs> that happens whenever we bring a pop punk mix on Nail the Mix. The uh, the death metal people, <laughs> oh wow, they will mix it. Imagine a day to remember with 127 snares. Exactly, where they're a little fuller and rounder in the actual production, probably. Yeah, of course. It's one of those things where, uh, Brown, like you said, or actually, Kevin, I think you said, or one of you said that you can still take your own flavor with you. And I actually think that's unavoidable, right? Yeah. Because it's still you. No matter what you're doing, it's still you. Your tendencies are still going to be your tendencies. I think so. And that's what makes everyone an individual. I think, yeah. How many people have tried to play like Eddie Van Halen, except no one will ever sound like Eddie Van Halen or, or Jimi Hendrix, or it'll just sound like your version of them. And that guy trying to play like Van Halen, Van Halen can't play like that guy. So everyone's going to have their own voice. Do you worry at all about developing your own voice or do you just worry about developing your musical abilities? Yeah, I don't worry about having a, a particular style or or something. I feel like that's ingrained in what I do and, and how I play. And I think that's just from how many hours do you spend practicing classical music? How many hours do you spend practicing blues or whatever you're listening to or whatever your influences are? Um, and that's going to come out of me completely different than it would someone else, um, even if they're trying to sound like me or you know, say another guitarist was writing solos for Escape the Fate, it, it'll sound like them playing solos in Escape the Fate. It won't sound like me doing it. No, only you can sound like you. Yeah, I think so. I think that's for every individual. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I would dare say that if someone sounds generic or, you know, writes generic songs and yeah. has a generic style of phrasing things or whatever. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot of generic people out there too. <laughs> there are. <laughs> it just is what a it lot, is. Lot, a lot of basic people out there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. no offense. It just is what it is. Like, uh, no offense to anyone listening. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I want, I want to hear a little bit about what goes into hip hop sessions from your end. Like the, the diversity involved that you said is important. So yeah, hip hop sessions. It's funny, oddly enough, nowadays when a hip hop artist is coming to our studio, they're looking for something more rock and roll. When Trippy came in, Travis Barker and Trippy did a record together where, where Travis presents Neon Shark, which was the name of Trippy's record, and, and Chino was on it. There was a bunch of features on it. MGK, Black Bear, Chino was definitely a, a sick one. And with that, um, Trippy was looking for a hard rock record. His influences were the Deftones. And that was like his definition of his rock that he was into. So we made a record like that. But he still did like more of his, his rap approach to it where he would go into the booth and his engineer would cut his vocals and he would go part by part from the start of the song and kind of put it together. And that one performance of it would be the song. It was single vocals. There were no doubling the chorus there might not be a chorus and and we kind of made choruses after the fact after they left but yeah it was definitely a different approach for those but it, but i guess if people are coming to you guys they're coming to you guys for a reason they want what you do yeah 
or else they want a flavor of it. If it is more of a, a trap artist, then there will be some live drums underneath the trap stuff. We have three kits set up now. We have a small pocket kit that's like a, a tiny ass kit that I just put up a single mono room mic up for. And we have this big warehouse kit. And we use those as tools to blend underneath trap drums. So I'll take this big roomy warehouse sounding kit and maybe filter it out, use devil lock on it, turn the darkness up, plug mix it. all the way up. Yeah. Um, I don't see a lot of people using that one as kind of a filter, but that one's a cool filter, whatever it does. One knob filter is a great one. <laughs> yeah. And we filter these drums in different ways to make them sound unique. And I think that's how we tie it into the, the rap world. I was about to say it's interesting. <laughs> that is interesting. <laughs> It is. And we use different creative things. Like I make a lot of loops. So I'll make loops for all different types of artists and a lot of pop artists and a lot of rap producers even. And for those loops on the rap ones, I'm like, I'm never making the guitar sound like a, a normal guitar. Maybe a couple of them I'll send something that sounds like an actual guitar playing, but usually I'm using some sort of pitch shifting or like a rotary sort of sound like I'll pitch it up an octave or pitch it down an octave and make it sound like a bass and I'll, I'll make different guitar loops like that and I just try to find interesting ways to incorporate guitar into music that doesn't naturally have guitars in it what are the ingredients of a loop for you like the basic ingredients uh a chord progression a melody and um something that you can just loop over and not get tired of. So I'll usually have a main part of the loop, which would be a chorus, which has like a nice chord progression, some melody lines. Maybe I'll, I'll put a baritone guitar on it or, or add a little bit of bass, but I'm filtering the bass to allow room for the 808s to go through. And then I'll have a verse section, which would usually be a filtered section and maybe less notes are played. And then I'll make just a C section, which would be like a bridge or, or something different. And I'll put a BPM on it, a key, and, and title it whatever the feel of that loop would be. Do you do the, the rhythm side of it? I do, yeah. And they're coming from me. So it's like usually when guitar is played on some like rap or trap records, it's someone that doesn't necessarily play guitar. So... I try to play a little sloppier almost so it sounds a little more authentic, raw, <laughs> authentic. But sometimes I'll make them really good and make them precise. I've been making a lot of classical guitar loops and some Spanish style guitar loops, which, which that classical guitar lessons have played a part in. And those have been super cool. I love the idea of incorporating what it is that you're actually working on. The reason I bring that up is... Because I noticed this when I was at Berkeley. I've noticed it over the years. I've noticed it online in the Riff Hard group um, that a lot of people will work on things because they think they have to. But there's a disconnect between what they're working on and life or their music or what they actually want to be doing. It's like they're learning exercises as if the exercise was the be all end all thing. They're not incorporating it. And I feel like incorporation is that final step, right? When you've learned something new, it's, you don't really know it 
until you've made it your own somehow. Right. And I think that maybe that Berkeley way of going about it by learning all these different things that maybe you're not using is a part of exploring at first, like you're a newer musician. So you, you want to try all these different things. You're like, I might want to try jazz. Oh, I hate jazz. Let me try a classical guitar. And maybe they like that or else they like a different part of it. So they're just exploring for the first time. Yeah, it's kind of like when you go to school, you do a bunch of subjects that you're never going to use. You're like, why is there math? <laughs> if you're looking at it that way, it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. But I'm bringing this up specifically for the people wanting to do something of their own, but they're spending all this time on things that are not their own. And then their own projects don't really move forward because, you know, they're spending, let's say, 90% of their time on this stuff that doesn't have anything to do with their own music. And then they're, they're not taking the time to actually incorporate things or to... Right. I mean, every time I learn a recording technique or I had rec learned a recording technique, I would use it immediately and at least try it out. If I learned a new way to process drums, I would try that out the very next day. And it might stick with me or it might not. But I think, yeah, the same thing goes with learning guitar. Try to use it. If you learn a new lick, use it in your next solo or something. Yeah, I think it is good to have those focused goals and whatever you are learning use it right away. Otherwise you'll, you'll lose it. You know, like you could incorporate a technique into your next solo and that solo might suck, but at least you incorporated it and then you can move on with your life. And that's full, <laughs> that's fully learning something. Yes. Like if you learn a definition of a word that you've never heard before, you have to make up 10 sentences with that word that are original. And then you'll know that word for the rest of your life at least till the next day till the next day <laughs> sure right yeah if you're trying to expand your vocabulary but i think yeah the same thing goes with guitar if you learn something on guitar just try to incorporate it or use it it seems like such a obvious thing but a lot of people don't do that and now that time is so limited i think whatever i am taking in as far as information or as far as practice routine goes it has to be for a practical reason Otherwise, I'm just wasting my time. <laughs> I mean, how many hours a day do you think you have for guitar? All, all in. I know that it's a little here, a little there. Right. I may be playing guitar all day on, on a record, but it's not like pushing my, myself as a guitarist. So probably a good 30 to 60 minutes a day, mm -hmm. maybe on improving actual techniques and getting better as a guitarist or a musician. And that includes like doing vocal warmups each day and you know, whatever else you want to learn. How much did you used to spend? Hours. Time was limitless. So any new guitarists out there, use your time wisely. Practice. Yeah, when I was younger, I'd, I, I walked around the house with a guitar. I took it everywhere. I would take it to school. I was jamming with my brother who plays drums. We'd jam in the, in the basement of, of our house for like hours. I was never interested in video games or like other things that the kids around me were interested in. I would just play guitar all day, every day. And then tour, actually, I was I started getting a lot better because I started using all that downtime on tour to practice. But that's also a discipline, too, because on tour, there are many distractions. <laughs> there sure are. <laughs> yeah, there really are. Yeah. 
Unless you're on tour, <laughs> you might never get that kind of time again. Like you had as a teenager. You don't get that kind of time on tour either, to be honest. Yeah. I find myself to have more free time on tour than at home though, because at home I'm swamped 24 seven. There's always like something to be done. Yeah. On tour, sometimes you have the luxury of having hurry up and wait. And, you know, you have a certain amount of time before your um, sound check and then a certain amount of time before the meet and greet. And then you have your show to play and then you're done. So it's... Man, young people... Pay attention. Use your time. Yes. And practice with a metronome. Come on, guys. <laughs> do people not do that? I didn't for years. Wow, really? That's surprising. First four four years of me playing guitar, I didn't play to a metronome at all. Maybe five years. Wow. You just played. I just played really badly. <laughs> it's hard to imagine you sucking. I know a couple dudes that are shredders that wouldn't play to metronomes too. That have just been on tour and they they could just play for hours just shredding. But um, someone like Ollie from All That Remains when we toured with Ollie, I remember he had the old metronome, like the big doctor metronome or whatever it's called machine. And he would practice with headphones on all day. Mm -hmm. And that inspired me again to, to do that i feel like i'm not practicing if there's if the click's not on yeah something turns on right where where you could just be kind of playing the parts but as soon as the metronome's on my brain turns on in that way where i feel like i'm actually getting better actually playing the parts yeah with the classical guitar it's it's trickier because i was practicing with the metronome and then once i learned that we had to be slowing things down and speeding up you have to unlearn how to play <laughs> to that that click it's weird learn rubato yeah is that what it is yeah that's what it's called right mr rubato one thing that's funny is uh i think now drummers they all play to a click that's like a normal thing and i remember when i was first trying to get drummers back a long time ago finding a drummer that played to a click was like Finding a fucking diamond or something. Yeah. Now it's the norm. The drummer for Escape of the Fate never practiced to a click. <laughs> he just practiced to Metallica records. That were not recorded to a click. <laughs> <laughs> that were not recorded to a click. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like things have changed and now it's the norm just because everyone has access to technology. But man, it used to be a rough world out there. It was. That's so funny because there was a turning point where, where you grow up and, and you're like, all right, we're going to put the drummer on a click now. And, and they're totally freaked out and <laughs> don't know what is happening. That happened to my old band. I remember we uh, we tried to make our old drummer play to a click and he just started throwing his drumsticks at us. <laughs> or it's like when guitarists get on uh, in-ears for the first time and they can actually hear themselves. I went the entire first half of my touring career without in-ears. And once I finally got on them, I realized every time I jumped off a riser, my guitar would make this nasty noise. And I was pulling notes out of tune. And I learned how to have controlled rocking out moments and without sounding like shit the whole time. And there's <laughs> guys that'll put on in-ears and like, there's feedback. And I'm like, that's your guitar feeding back. And you basically <laughs> just use those situations to learn how to play better live. In-ears are, are great. It is amazing what happens once you realize what you sound like. Well, the, the, the sinking feeling of playing that many shows 
sounding that shit. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty horrifying for me getting in ears on. Yeah. You're like, I'm not, I'm not killing it every night. <laughs> <laughs> and then I remember using in-ears for the first time and it was on tour with Avenged Sevenfold and it was really the first time I used them. And I kind of had to stop rocking out so hard. And then I learned how to rock out while playing in tune, in key, in time. <laughs> all, those, all those things that are important. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah. You notice every little fret, like that probably made me a really good studio guitarist because I would, I would hear my, the frets making that loud squeaky noise and I'd figure out creative ways to not have that. I mean, I track so many guitarists that don't know how to mute the other strings that they're not playing while playing the guitar. Like if you're doing octaves, like why is that B string ringing out and they want fret wraps or whatever. And I always, I guess I learned to do that just by not thinking about having fret wraps, but using specific techniques. If I, if I have my first finger on the A string, then part of the pad of my first finger is muting the low E string and little nuanced things with guitar playing that, that are really hard to teach other people. I think that the experience of having a guitar with a lot of gain on stage, just like this unruly beast will really yeah. drive that home. If you're paying attention, like you are on in-ears, it'll really drive it home because you're, every time you hear that noise, you realize that it's you and that there's a lot of people watching you sound like shit. And that's a really good way to hammer it in where I think uh, if someone just has the bedroom where there's nothing wrong with the bedroom, but a lot of people get really good in the bedroom, but the pressure is not there. Exactly. It's just not. You can't recreate that feeling of fucking up in front of a lot of people with an instrument that is loud as fuck. It's loud, unruly. Yeah. There's active pickups in it. And um, I think I realized it on that event Sevenfold Tour where we're playing some of these amphitheaters and larger venues where we weren't face to face with the audience and it's not like a chain reaction type show it's this massive show where they're we're, they're seeing your face on this big screen and they're so far away and the only thing they can really do is is hear what you're playing they, they don't care that you're making a particular face or you're jumping around like crazy or throwing your guitar behind your head i mean that that stuff is super cool and if you're in a noisier band like that then and rock on but if you want to be more precise and you know make sure everyone's muted when when the music stops then you have to take those things into consideration and, and play to those parts and it will make you like you said a way better studio guitarist exactly especially if you have click going on in your ears and you're playing to it one of the main things as a producer or engineer that has caused me to pick a different guitar player uh, when recording a band isn't always their ability to play on the click though. That's, that's a big one is like how, how hard do they pick? How in time do they pick? Of course that matters. But then beyond that, it's like, how clean are they? Even with like taping up the springs and doing all that stuff still like how clean are they? And the person that has the less bullshit going on, it typically wins, at least in the kind of stuff I've recorded. Totally. Same. Unless I'm plagued with just replaying it later. Well, yeah, <laughs> there's that too. I've always let the artist know that. 
that was happening. Have you? Yeah. If it needed oh, to. It's if, honorable. I think so. Well, maybe not. I don't know. Like <laughs> lying, say, right? Is that always a good idea? <laughs> no, it isn't. But it's always a good idea to have a great recording and have the band sound awesome. Because even if the, the players are not playing that well, it's going to reflect on you as the recording person, the out of tuneness. But that's that's the way, yeah, picking guitarists as well. Even if it's not like maybe the most shredding guitarist, maybe the rhythm guitar player has a better pick technique where they're not having a, such a downward scraping sound. It's more of a, a flat pick where you can hear the notes being pronounced a bit better. Maybe it's the drummer. You never know. <laughs> it might be the drummer. I've been involved in situations where the drummer is the best guitar player in the band. Multiple times, actually. Like, you, you never know who it's going to be. No way. Oftentimes, it's not the person who likes to stand out on stage with the spotlight and play sweeps. Like, there's sometimes it's some hidden weapon member that's got the best studio chops guitar-wise. Kind of amazing. I like that. I think I've always resorted to replaying things. Yeah. I've definitely been patient, though, and, and taught someone how to, to play for the parts if that was needed. What's important to know if that's a possibility, right? Like, if someone is, like, it's hard to put numbers on this, but, like, say 10% under where they need to be to track the part right. You can probably get them there through proper coaching and all that. And that's going to change their life too. So it's like, you're going you're to change the way they play in every studio situation going forward. And they're going to thank you. Even if it's like a grueling rhythm guitar day, if you need them to be tilting the pick the other way and make sure you mute or lift your fingers up quickly and change to the next chord quickly, it's good stuff to, to teach and lend that knowledge out. Yeah, but... If they're nowhere close, right? <laughs> yeah. Not like 10% under, like say they're like 75% less good than they need to be. You're not going to get them there in a day. You're not even get them there in two days. Like they're going to need to go home and practice for a while in order to get that. And then at that point, I think replaying it yourself is the way to go. And you've got 12 other songs to track and yeah. drums to edit and a singer. <laughs> They've got, they've got to work with, unless there's a million dollar budget. It's not your fault too, that the guitar player didn't practice. So I've heard some engineers say that there's like this moral issue with doing that. And I just don't see the moral issue because like you said, at the end of the day, you're going to get judged for what that thing sounds like. Yeah. If you don't take steps to just do whatever it takes to have it sound great, the, uh, the guitar player is actually the asshole for not getting their shit together and coming in and knowing how to play. That it's not your I fault love that. that they didn't do their job, but then you have to do your job though. So the fact that they didn't do their job doesn't stop that you have to do yours. It's, it's honestly hard being a tracking engineer. <laughs> like sometimes when you're tracking a band and you're like, and they're in a band and they tour and they do all that stuff. And you're like, I practice my downstroke palm mute picking so much I, I i failed in a recording session and went home and practiced it obsessively at one point and it's like for them to not try it's like <laughs> let's put some effort in it's weird you would expect them to have figured out what it takes but that's what riff art is all about 
That's right. <laughs> it's making these guitar players better. Hey, it's still difficult recording your parts, even if you're practicing a lot. Like I'm currently recording our new record and I, I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> that makes you such a better player though, recording your own self. Yes. Since I started playing again, I have been doing the riff hard stuff, the, the exact same thing that we tell people to do. My playing's back. But the one thing that I've been doing beyond that is I've been recording all these exercises. Like, So I've been doing the exercises just as a means to an end, like to get my playing back. But nice. I don't trust anything until it's recorded because you can't really hear what's going on when you're playing. Like you can, but not completely. You don't totally know. There's like you're hearing it through your body and like you're feeling things and there's like pick noise and you're also in the in the moment so you're not knowing what's what's happening exactly you might not always know that you're rushing or dragging or whatever you might think you're feeling it and then play it back and you were ahead of everything yeah that's why i've been practicing too and it's so funny that you've been back into and i saw joel wanasak yeah he's back into it too he's back into it i feel like i'm back into it. i feel like i'm in this weird circle of all these everyone's getting back into guitar shredding. It's awesome. It's funny with Joel, people think that me and him talked about it or something like that. We coordinated it. It's completely coincidental that he got back into it at the same time that I did. There was something in the air. Pandemic. <laughs> yeah, but it's been a long time. Yeah. For you guys, you guys have like really been working on, on that for a while, right? Yeah, but I mean, the pandemic's been here for a while. True. Something in the air. It's the new virus, Could Shred be. 19. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if you feel the same way. So now that I'm back to it, but I've had a lot of success with other stuff, I don't have this crazy pressure on me that I did with the band, like a pressure cooker or a vice grip on my head. And now... It's feeling like I can just play and uh, enjoy it, and it's kind of free, which is really, really cool. Now, I know that, like, playing is part of your job, but, like, at this point, there's a million different things you can do, and you've had quite a bit of success in things that are not necessarily guitar. So now that you're back into it, is it a different kind of feeling? Yeah, a little different sort of vibe but at the same time I have that drive to get really good again and I think that comes from well I am doing a show with Travis coming up so I'll be fun there's a drive within that he's putting on this show called like House of Horrors it's got Ian Dior Mark Hoppus is coming back Jaden Hostler, MGK Black Bear and I think a couple others and I'm playing guitar for the whole thing so we're learning this set. So you better. Yeah. And it is a, a bit easier stuff, but I just want to crush it. The entire audience will be all the guitar players you've re-recorded the parts of. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Or I just shred over some some Blink stuff. <laughs> that's sick. very appropriate. Very appropriate. So that's, pro that's also why I got like the Les Paul. I have like a Jazz Master and you know, is fitting that sort of genre where it's more more rock-based. And, and that calls for having a different instrument. I can't go up there with, with like, the most shreddy Jackson. I mean, you could. Could, <laughs> yeah. But you want to do what's appropriate. Probably should. But, yeah, I've got some different guitars to help me out with that gig. I think it'll be fun to 
to pull out some different instruments. And I see that's a common thread as well with guitarists. I've seen these guitarists that have had endorsements for their entire career that I've known of. And I'm seeing them pull out all these different guitars on Instagram yep. and Twitch. It's beautiful. And I love it. That's an, that's a new theme. And I feel like I'm right, I'm right on that train as well, where I'm like interested in playing all different types of guitars and that's exciting. I believe we were talking about that with Herman Lee on his episode. Yeah, we were. How the exclusivity slash endorsement situation is not what it used to be. It has changed. And many people are just not into the exclusivity unless there's like a really good reason to be. Right. Unless you have maybe you have an artist guitar that you're selling which is great but even then social media has changed the game to where because so many people will what will look at one post if your social media is doing well enough you'll get as many eyes on one post as you will get in an entire tour obviously depending on the size of the tour and depending on your social media you could do the math and you might be reaching more people from one post and that being the case it in my opinion, it requires companies to up the ante a little bit with what they're offering or lower their expectations as far as exclusivity goes. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's easier. I mean, when I was first signed to a company to play their guitars, it was definitely an exclusive thing. And if I ever played any other guitars, we were taping out. The hit squad would come take you out. Yeah, exactly. Or I would just feel guilty about it. I'm like, oh, I'm being bad right now. I'm playing like a Les Paul. Like, yeah. I hope they don't see this. <laughs> but now it seems like cool. And everyone's just embracing the guitar. And there's so many great companies making great guitars. Um, and I think, again, the social media thing plays a part in it where Herman Lee, he could be playing a different style guitar that might not be suitable for Dragon Force, but he's playing it on Twitch and maybe jamming to a different genre or something. Like with Escape the Fate, I'll probably always play like an ESP custom with a Floyd Rose or else maybe I'll bring out a Les Paul with a Floyd Rose or something. But I definitely need a fast guitar that I can shred over. This gig with Travis Barker, I can play a whole variety of different style guitars. That's like interesting to me and fun. You shouldn't be stopped from doing it. I do understand that back in the day, since the internet didn't exist and there were very limited outlets where to see an artist using an instrument. If the artist used a different instrument, that's a big deal. Like if you had an Ibanez deal in the year 2001, the possibilities to see you playing that Ibanez would be in a guitar magazine, on stage, on tour, or hopefully on MTV. That is it. So if you went up there with a Fender or something, you're being a fucking dick. Exactly. I always thought that was cool that Kirk Hammett, he had his ESPs, but then you would see him in a music video with a Strat. Yeah. Or his 59 Les Paul. That's the one I was just going to say. And that's what Gibson gave me, which I just realized a few days ago. This is so cool. Which is like, it's the 1959 Heritage lemon green finish on top of it, which like, I think his is called Greeny. That one, yeah, it's based off Peter Green's one that basically have Kirk Hammett's guitar. Kirk Hammett (laughs) playing whatever he wants. I need to make sure that it doesn't come off like me saying that any guitar player's current social media is even close to Kirk Hammett's status at any point in time. But that's more like the same principle, which is Kirk Hammett 
even 20 years ago or 30 years ago, had so much reach with every single thing that he did that who can say anything? It feels like playing something else in the studio one day and, you know, and a documentary goes up with him playing something else. Like just him bestowing his, uh, his reach on anything is a miracle, I think, for that company. Absolutely. That's so cool you got that guitar. I think it's so sick. I love it. So other guitars are fun too. <laughs> Long story short, I'm picking up all my all my guitars like in the next week. From a storage unit or something or? Yeah, because I just have the one. So I wanted to make sure that I actually was uh, going to follow through. And it wasn't just like one day. I was like, I'm going to play again and then not do it. But now that I've uh, committed... Um, yeah, I'm going to go grab them all. Now that you've unlocked the golden key, the golden ticket to, to un unleashing the shred again on the world. Honestly, I just had to make sure that it wasn't like a whim. But another thing that inspired me, I think, to get a few different guitars was our storage unit got broken into during the pandemic, like last January. That sucks. It was just a few. I think I had like three or four guitars that, that got stolen out of there. One of them was... was broken already so jokes on them yeah right it was like a music video guitar that i had broken um but it was a couple of cool esp that that i've had for a very long time but that prompted me i'm like well i guess i gotta re-up some new guitars and and I, and I got a few new ones how much shit did they take three or four of my guitars a couple of our other guitarists guitars i think an acoustic bass was in there i think it was an inside job I don't mean like anyone at your studio or anything, but like you think it was like someone who knew what was in there? No, I got a call from a detective a few months ago and they found someone like with my a photocopy of my passport. So they like had taken some random stuff, but they had hit a bunch of different units. Ah, uh, okay. They bought a unit with like a fake name and then hit a bunch of units. Still have to like handle insurance and all that stuff. I haven't done any of that yet, but... But that being said, I'm like, I let go of some guitars, brought some new guitars into my life. But yeah, don't trust those those storage units. No, I should get some new guitars. Yeah. It's a good idea. I've even bought guitars this pandemic. It's fun. I don't know how I feel about that. I just bought amps. But I, but I do want to get some new guitars. You bought an amp. I uh, bought a 5150, and it's the amp that I hate the most. Is it the block letter 5150? Yeah, well, it's a signature. It's right here. Sick. It's orange boy. Oh, nice. A couple of other amps. But yeah, I didn't buy any guitars this pandemic, which is bizarre for me. I had to buy that classical guitar because no one wanted to endorse me as a classical guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show them one day. <laughs> Did you try? Yes, of course. Yeah. Always go for the DM first. No. <laughs> but yeah, I got a sick Cordoba. I love it. Maybe they'll give me one now. You've said it on the Riff Hall podcast. It's going to happen. That's that's right. It's cool. I want to I want to get some vintage guitars. That's a rabbit hole of expensive. Yes, especially now the the vintage guitar market went up like crazy. Yeah, I used to I used to work for a for a shop on Denmark Street in London, and part of my job was to hand deliver some of the more expensive of the vintage guitars, fifty nines with the bursts intact pre-CBS strats and stuff like that. It's pretty amazing just to be able to play all those guitars. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's good. Right. <laughs> That's so fun. That's so true too, because there's there's people that come in with their, their old vintage guitars and they won't stay in tune 
and the session will take twice as long as it needs to. And I'm like, well, we ha also have this guitar that stays in perfect tune and sounds probably just as good. <laughs> I, I, I would rather play an, a new guitar that stayed in tune more. Me too. In a studio setting, at least, or live. I was actually thinking that I'd like to get an Evertune guitar. Never thought about that before, but uh, it just dawned on me when I tried recording something yesterday. I was like, oh, man, this again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want an Evertune. Yeah, they're fun. They're great, too, for having in a studio for other people to play as well. There's sometimes, because the pressure you apply to the string is going to make it sharp or flat at times. So a lot of it, a lot of it can be feel. So maybe not an ex experienced guitarist would be nice on, on Evertunes. And I've tracked a lot of rhythm guitars with an Evertune. It's so much easier. I personally prefer the, uh, the hours of hatred wondering why this string won't stay in fucking tune. Right. Fuck that. <laughs> I'm getting an Evertune. Do it. Yeah. I, I have a guitar with an Evertune here, by the way. I get it. But I, like, you know, Brown, how our time is. And I know you can relate, Kevin. I don't have the time right now in my life to... To tune your no, guitar. not that. If I'm going to be recording quads... <laughs> if I'm going to be recording quads... What are, you, what, what are you planning? I'm not talking He's about making it. His... But let's just say if I'm, I'm going to be recording quads, I don't have the time to go into a tuning rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> or octaves. Why are octaves always out of tune? Yeah. And I love those octaves. I need an Evertune. I just decided it. Keep them out of tune for the record. <laughs> Put an Evertune on a very old vintage guitar would be great. There you go. God. Problem solved. I just imagine some like uh, purists' heads exploding right now. Kirk Hammett should do that to his 59. <laughs> oh my great. God. It'd be great. It's like, it's like a $100,000 guitar. Or... No, no, it's way more than that. Is it a million dollar guitar? It's between half and a million, I would say, for that one. It should yeah. be. I took 159 with the burst intact, and it went for a quarter of a million quid, which is, what, like $350,000, $400,000? This was 10 years ago. Oh, reported $2 million? Kirk paid $2 million for that guitar. Yeah. What a baller. I would have asked for a friend discount. What a legend. I know. <laughs> this is fucking awesome. Hard flex. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little. Hard flex, Kirk Hammond. And he plays it. That's one positive thing. Yeah. It's not just on display at a hard rock. Yeah. The, the the vintage guitars that haven't been played are usually the worst ones. So sad. I understand the idea behind why certain people do not take their nicest guitars on the road. I understand. But then at the same time, I don't know. I understand why some people do take their nicest guitars on the road. Totally. They're just tools. Yeah, where are you on that? Just a curiosity. Well, I always took my ESPs on the road, um, and they weren't necessarily one of a kinds. So maybe I was on the other side of that. But they were always good guitars. They're always like, you know, the Japanese block letter ESPs that were really well made. But yeah, I haven't, I haven't tried that. Now I probably would. I'm definitely taking that that 59 on the road. That was my next question. Would you take the 59? I will take that guitar. I'm going to play it, beat it up a little bit. You already know that theft can happen even when you don't take your guitars on the road. Right. And that's another thing I've learned is ensure your, your gear, everyone. I did not do that on that theft. So 
I just took the L. I'm sorry to hear that. But ensure ensure all that that gear that everyone has. Everybody out there who has gear, especially those of you that are touring, anytime that I see a friend of mine's trailer got broken into on the road, my first question, I'm not going to get in the comments and be like, did they have insurance or like be like, told you so. Right. Dumbass. Like I, I'm not. It is. No. <laughs> no, of course Dumbass not. for sure. Absolutely. But, no, I don't want to like be a dick, but anyone listening, please get insurance. At some point, if you're out there long enough, you might encounter an unscrupulous individual. Totally. Or the TSA. Or an accident. <laughs> I've had my ESPs. Yeah, TSA. But I've had my ESPs and they've always been so generous and amazing. So I was able to be a little less responsible, but get <laughs> responsible quick, everyone. But yeah, I've, I've left guitars at venues before during my younger years. I have left guitars that were not part of an endorsement at venues in the earlier touring days, pre-endorsement touring days, and uh, felt like such an idiot. Was it Jack Daniels' fault? Yeah. Probably Jaeger and Red Bull's yeah. fault. <laughs> Jack and, yeah. and Jameson and their friend Tito. Yeah, it was definitely it was definitely some enhancement going on. <laughs> yeah, that's when I, I've lost stuff for sure. So the number one rule is don't party until the trailer's locked. Yes. Yep. And all your stuff's put away. And then have a little fun if you're going to do that. Uh, that's a good rule. It's a, unfortunately, it's a rule that uh, gets ignored. Bands learn it after something shitty's happened. Right. That's the only way to learn, though, isn't it? You only, you only learn from mistakes. Or you could pay attention to this podcast and listen to people who yeah. have done it <laughs> and, uh, right. and not have to go through that. It's a slippery slope. Were there ever any bands that, uh, when you first started touring, that kind of showed you the ropes? Like, for, for instance, uh, when my band first started touring, we were very lucky that we toured with Goat Whore as one of the first bands. And they're like, uh, they're like as professional as it can possibly get for an underground extreme metal band, like in that ilk. And so, you know, we could have been stuck doing lots of smaller tours with uh, bands that were not professional, but these dudes ran a tight fucking ship and were really, really cool and helped us not fuck up too bad. And it was like our second tour ever. We were lucky enough to basically, I'm not going to say they mentored us, but they showed us how to do it for real. Did you have anyone do that for you or did you just kind of have to figure it out? We definitely figured it out the hard way. Yeah. When we first started touring, we were definitely a reckless band. There was a party bus and there was a sober crew bus, and it was just the singer and I on the party bus. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, we were, we were bad boys. <laughs> wow. Yeah, we had two different buses, so we were kind of like the more unruly ones, for sure. And we learned the hard way definitely to get responsible and figure out our shit and treat it as a business. And why was the band having two tour buses at a time where we maybe should have had only one. You live and you learn, but those were great times. But I think what we've learned from other bands is, is, is how to treat the opening bands or the bands under you. And I think that that came from Avenged Sevenfold again. I think there was one of the nights where Craig and I were just chilling on our bus. We were having a chill night watching Top Gun and it was 
one of our nights that we weren't partying and Sinister Gates knocked on the tour bus and we're, we're chilling. Like, I think we had like a vanilla candle and we're watching Top Gun. <laughs> the oddest situation. And uh, Sinister Gates walks on. We hadn't talked to him the whole tour. And, and Brian, and he goes like, well, I thought this was the party bus I heard. And we got up right away and I ran to the fridge and I like tossed out beers to everyone. And I was like, this is the party bus. And we had, we had a fog machine in our bus. We had, we had lights, like stage lights, strobe lights. And vanilla candles. But he was super kind to us at the end of the day. And that's what I learned is to be cool and rad to, to the opening bands. Cause you never know. You don't ever know. It's kind of funny though, that only the two of you were the party bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is funny. It must have been pretty extreme. I don't know. I didn't talk to our drummer for the first like two or three tours. He he never talked to me when I when I joined the band. Yeah, it was it <laughs> was an, really it was a funny situation. And then one day he finally started talking to you. Like one day he wrote a, a song for the record and wanted to put it on and had to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to start. Good icebreaker. No, nah, he's awesome. I don't know why I'm giving him shit on this podcast. He's Because <laughs> it's hilarious. Miss that guy. We've been a problem band. So we're notoriously, we're, we're like the bad kids on the street. And we learned to eventually respect others, respect the opening bands. Um, the opening bands could be headlining and you're going to be wanting to maybe tour with them at one point. So it's like, just be respectful, be respectful of staff because everyone remembers your band when you walk in. Did being the bad kids hold you back at all? So you guys have done pretty damn well. So I wasn't necessarily like a part of that group, even though it was, I had to be on the party bus, but um, I was actually the, the more responsible one when I joined the band and because the band was like notoriously, canceling tours and canceling shows and that'll get you in trouble and wouldn't show up at times and when i joined out i was kind of like the the stable person i was like i just wanted to be there just stay on tour for the rest of my life probably at that point so they made a good decision getting a grounding influence in there i think so yes but yeah we we come from that i guess and then you know the band was scarred in in many ways from having these situations in the past and and maybe you know, us being a little cranky in the mornings, just maybe some radio or whatever, you know, you learn really quick that you need to put a real effort to be, you know, a professional band. And, you know, the drinking and partying is not something you can show up to every day. Yeah, a few of us in the band are sober now. So that just goes to show. I'm not allowed to say who I was speaking with. I was speaking with a super legendary guitar player the other day. And we were talking about how everyone he knows from like the good old days of being huge that is like past the age of 50 is sober or dead. Right. One or the other. They're, either they died or they're sober. Choose your adventure wisely, right? Yeah. He, he said without fail. It is, yeah. Choose your adventure. Do you want to die or do you just want to keep going? I was, I was watching this interview with Steve Ray Vaughn the other day because I'm, I'm back into that world. So I'm like, I download a bunch of stuff on YouTube before I go to the gym and on the treadmill, I'll, I'll like watch it. And that one, he, it's so tragic because he had just gotten sober 
before his his death. And yeah, and he said it best. It's like, you can't show up to the party every day. And that's what we were doing. And he was like losing focus in, in what, it, what it meant to be a guitarist and, and play from the heart and the soul and, you know, started to lose some of his purpose. But then he had found it again by going sober. And that was super inspiring. I don't think that you need to be on stuff to do good music. I think that that's a, that's a myth. What I think happens is, you know, oftentimes, you know, this myth of when an artist goes sober, their music or something starts sucking. When that has happened, what people are pointing to is actually the artist's brain is fucked up at that point. That's why they're sucking. They're not sucking because they went sober. Their brain is messed up. The end. They have to recover. And some do and some don't. I don't think that drugs or alcohol are a requirement for creativity. I don't think so either. Yeah. It's a myth. I mean, everyone thinks it's all the partying in the world, especially some of the sessions that I'm doing. And, and a lot of it's just, we're just there working. Like we're at work. So it's like you wouldn't show up to the office with, with a beer or like a bottle of tequila. And, and that's, we're not, we're not showing to this, showing up to the studio that way. Even some of the biggest artists, they're, they're like, they'll come in. And even if they're known to be that sort of personality, they're not necessarily doing that. Well, they're the biggest artists for a reason. Right. Got to get shit done. Absolutely. When to party and when to not. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, I think it's a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out. It's a pleasure, as always. Appreciate chatting with you guys. This has been badass. Lovely to meet you, Kevin. Nice to meet you. Finally seen all your stuff oh i'm sorry it's badass <laughs> and i think i'm signed up to the riff hard so i'm gonna i'm gonna riff hard i'm definitely going to work on some exercises some of that down picking gains i i saw there was like a whole entire lesson or series of lessons on down picking which i love that <laughs> oh picking doesn't exist in my world hell yeah <laughs> i love that i mean that's such a strength to have like a strong down picking rhythm foundation in so many different genres that, you know, I came from being wanting to be a soloist and, and play all the guitar solos, but I certainly made time to learn how to be a great rhythm player as well. It matters. Yeah. So when you go to the site, just look under lessons and down picking gym and uh, fucking have at it. That's so sick. Love it. Man, Kevin's got a lot going on. Yeah, it actually makes me wonder how, I mean, obviously he clearly has good time management skills, but how on earth he comes up with as much music as he does, I can't understand it. A, he works really hard. B, he's very talented, etc. But I tried something he said in here. I tried that uh, writing for the wastebasket idea. Okay. Oh, really? So I think it's not just talent, hard work, and good time management. He also focuses on the right things and he does smart things. Okay. So yeah, last night at like 11 p.m., I was like, I want to write something and then go to bed. <laughs> and it was nothing but shit was coming out. So I was like, well, Kevin said, try writing for the waste bin. Like, just try that. And like he, he said that whenever he does that, good stuff happens. And so I did. And an hour and a half later, I had five awesome parts. So basically you're trying to remove the emotional attachment to what you've written. Well, not trying to make it good. Like I don't, like 
it doesn't have to be anything. Like at first when I sat down, I was like, got to do something sick. And then when I was like, no, I'm writing for the trash. It doesn't have to be sick. <laughs> yeah. It's getting rid of all the ideas that you have in that moment. And if one turns out great, sick. They're pretty fucking cool. I find that when I have a deadline is when shit has to come out. It's not a case of it, you know, I'm writing. It's like, I've got to finish a song by this date. And um, this happened last week, actually. So we were one song short for the record on Thursday. And Mike started tracking the final drums for the record on Monday, the last four or five tracks. And we had two days to write a song and it's turned out to be one of the best on the record. And it was just write something. Just write something. Yeah, I stand by that waste bin idea. Yeah, just write something. Hey, the, the best way to think about it is even if you, whatever you're writing, someone somewhere is going to hate it. So it's all good. <laughs> it is. It is good. It, it's funny. The moment that I like got that idea in my head, the first thing that came out was so simple. And for a second, I was like, this is so dumb. This is so cliche. But I was like, who cares? Just do it. And I just kept going. And it was actually pretty cool. It's hard as a musician. I, I'd consider you as well being more drawn towards technical guitar. I think that guitar players have this problem maybe more than most other musicians because we are constantly wanting to reach the pinnacle of our, um, you know, how our technique, we always want to push ourselves. And I think that often or not, we forget about those simple lines and automatically associate them with being boring or crap. And flicking that switch off is an incredibly difficult thing to do. It really is, but it's especially difficult to do if you don't know that you should do it. I'm telling you, man, that writing for the trash idea is fucking great. Okay. I'm going to have to try it. I literally have a waste bin next to me looking at me. It doesn't mean <laughs> that you're trying to write something bad. It just means that it doesn't matter. It's trash. It doesn't matter. It's just whatever. Don't associate what you're writing with anything. Just literally write. Yeah, just do it. Doesn't matter. You're going to throw it away. So who fucking cares? Simple, simple, cliche idea. Who cares? Just fucking do it. But now you like the simple, simple, cliche idea. Later on, when I listened to it, like this morning, it really wasn't cliche. It was just cool and dark. I was, while I was writing it, I was imagining like, well, yeah, Satyricon would do this or something. Or like somebody, Demon might have done this or whatever. But it's just so typical, this minor chord in this position and just put that shit to the side. Writing for the garbage, <laughs> it doesn't fucking matter. Smart. I'm into it. Yeah. We give people the opportunity to uh, write for the garbage over at uh, Riff Hard with uh, King of the Riff. <laughs> <laughs> write for the garbage and win some absolutely amazing prizes. Yeah. Tell us about King of the Riff for people who don't know. Every month I will write a brief and from that brief, which could be anything such as this month, which is to write in the style of groove metal, in the style of Dimebag Daryl to be precise. You can write anything from two to five minutes, a couple of riffs, and you can win some absolutely amazing prizes. You have two weeks to write these riffs. Yeah, I mean, we get some absolutely amazing submissions from our, from our members. Some of these could be released songs. Yeah, absolutely. Some are really damn good. Really, really damn good. And, you know, the, the briefs really range. It can be a style of music, right, in a particular key, maybe transition between one uh, relative key to another. 
Yeah, um, we even did an anime month to write in the style of anime, which has its own set of, um, I guess, um, you know, parameters that it writes to whenever you hear, you know, music in, you know, anime. Yeah. Totally. Um, even the Bond theme. So we did a Bond theme month as well that also, you know, has that chord. Everyone knows the Bond chord. <laughs> it's like an E. So a minor, major seven? Yes, that's it. E minor, major seven. There's also, you know, certain chord sequences that happen in all of them as well. So yeah, it's about analyzing other styles of music and trying to find firstly what you want to write music in, but also just to get better as a musician. And by doing these exercises, that's what it's going to do. Gives you a deadline too. Like you just said, like it's actually the same idea over at Nail the Mix. Like one of the reasons that Nail the Mix has the mix competition is not because of the prizes. And a lot of people don't seem to get this through their heads that it's cool if you win, but out of hundreds and hundreds of entries, only one or two are going to walk away with prizes. So odds are not high of winning. But the thing that it does do is that it gets you to finish a mix and hand it in, which is a really hard thing to do, actually. A lot of mixers, they can never finish a mix and they're scared to hand it in. So, so we train people with that. Guitar players can't finish songs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With a uh, songwriting, one of the biggest problems I see is people just not finishing their songs and moving on to the next one. And by doing King of the Riff, if you're going to enter, you have to finish the song and turn it in. I also find that guitar players stay on the same riffs for years. Yeah. Like they're trying to finish a song and it's like, dude, just get rid of it. Just finish it, hand it into someone, let someone listen to it, move on to the next one. Absolutely. Riffhard.com, get better. <laughs> Riffhard.com, get better. That's right. <laughs> Talk to you next week, Brown. See you next week, mate. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.